Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers two films, Eraserhead and Inland Empire, David Lynch's first and last film. And this is actually a two-parter. Next week, I'm going to continue this subject, but I'm not dividing the films between the two podcasts. What I'm doing is covering them individually in this podcast, and then in the next one, I'm going to draw 10 connections between them. These are Lynch's first and last films, and uh, in many ways, they're very different. In other ways, more similar, as we'll discuss. But first, I just want to start off by going into each film on its own. So that's what I'm going to do here. As always, I invite feedback. Please let me know if you have any thoughts on either of these films, uh, anything that you know, you're sort of thinking about independently, or if it's something that springs off of what I talk about in this podcast, I'd love to include it. And I actually already have some feedback that I will be including in next week's episode. So looking forward to that. The previous episode covered the film Eyes Wide Shut in the form of a conversation with another film commentator, Andrew Cook. And my work elsewhere since that episode has been uh, pretty busy on Patreon in particular. So first of all, on my site, lostinthemovies.com, I've continued my Mad Men Season 5 viewing diary with the episode Commissions and Fees, episode 12 of that season. That's a big one. I won't say too much about it for those who haven't seen it before, but uh, there's a, a, a character who gets into some trouble for some financial stuff with the company and you know, it sort of spins out of control. So you may know what I'm talking about if you've seen it, but this was one that was certainly interesting to cover in that light. And then on Patreon for $5 a month uh, patrons, I began my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast uh, multi-part episode on Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the Twin Peaks film. This is going to come in nine parts that I'm releasing daily at this point. So I've already put up the introduction Part one, which is on the production context, and part two, which is on the historical context. And then there's actually a couple free components to this on Patreon as well. They're up on that site, uh, patreon.com slash lost in the movies, but they're open to uh, everybody. And that's because they're using archive material that I've already, you know, rounded up on my site. So there's no point in sort of making my reading of them exclusive the audio versions of what's uh, already out there publicly. So these two episodes are. The uh, part three, critical reception of the film, uh, public, and then part four, fan reactions, also public. And I actually just put that part four up this morning. It's coming out right about the same time as this podcast. For dollar a month patrons on uh, Patreon, I put up episode 82, Twin Peaks Cinema, Bigger Than Life, the Nicholas Ray film starring James Mason about a uh, father who gets hooked on cortisone in the 1950s, and I draw some connections between that and Firewalk with me in particular, as well as Twin Peaks more broadly. Plus, there are Twin Peaks reflections in that podcast on the characters of Randy and Jones, the locations of the Great Northern Hotel and Fat Trout Trailer Park, and I connect Wyndham Earl's uh, storyline to My Life, My Tapes, the Cooper book. I also talk about the Afghanistan withdrawal, Nina Turner's loss, and other recent political developments, and other subjects as well. And then I also opened up Lost in Twin Peaks number 25 for all patrons. That covers episode 24, uh, as it's usually known, the season two episode that kind of starts off the late season stretch. I, I think it's an underrated uh, part of the series, but some, some, some think it's the worst episode, so there's some disagreement there. And finally, on YouTube, I'm continuing my summer of uh, Twin Peaks Season 3 coverage, where I am taking a video essay that I made last year called uh, basically just Journey Through Twin Peaks The Return, 
and uh, dividing it into smaller sections based on different stretches of episodes. So I'm putting these up on the fourth anniversaries of these episodes. And last week I put up Twin Peaks Forked Path, video essay on season three, parts 14 through 16. So covering those parts of the series right before the finale. And uh, unfortunately, my that larger video, Journey Through Twin Peaks, The Return, where all of these little sections are sort of put together... Uh, that is undergoing an annoying copyright dispute. I've had a lot of these this summer and really this past year, year and a half. Point being, the reason I mention it is if there are some of you who are thinking about watching that in that form, you can still find it on Vimeo. I'll link that in the show notes. So while the YouTube version is down, you can find it there. Plus, uh, this weekend, I'll be putting up the last section on the finale. So that whole chapter will also be available on YouTube in those smaller chunks. So let's get into the two Lynch films. Hello. We're all very happy to be here tonight. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce my boys. This is uh, Chucko, and this is Buster, and this is Pete. I'm David Lynch, and this is Bob, and this is Dan. And... We just wanted to get together and thank all of the people that have supported Eraserhead uh, through the years and particularly thank the New Art Theater for its support. The New Art was one of the first theaters to ever show Eraserhead. Also, um, the boys wanted me to uh, wish you uh, peace and happiness. And um, these guys aren't just a bunch of goofballs. They know that there's plenty of suffering in the world and they... Uh, spent many years with little iron hooks in their backs up on uh, Sunset Boulevard. And, uh, but they tell me uh, that there's this all-pervading happiness underneath everything. And the more time I spend with them, the more I believe it. And so we wish you peace and happiness and long live Eraserhead. Thanks a million. That was David Lynch in a trailer for Eraserhead that was made in the early 80s. But lest you take too much uplift from that very happy preview for a very dark movie, there's a troubling sequel. I'm going to quote from a Telegraph article which came out last year when David Lynch was promoting The Return. David Lynch is recalling a day in 1981 when he says he rescued five Woody Woodpecker toys that he saw hanging up as he drove past a petrol station. I screech on the brakes, I do a U-turn, go back, and I buy them and I save their lives, he says seriously. I named them Chucko, Buster, Pete, Bob, and Dan, and they were my boys and they were in my office. They were my dear friends for a while, but certain traits started coming out and they became not so nice. Looking straight ahead, he says with a grim finality, they are not in my life anymore. Eraserhead was David Lynch's first film, which is part of why we're covering it this week, because I wanted to pair his first and his last movie. It took him five years to make it. He began as an AFI student in the early 70s, and he finally finished it in 1977, when he was already 30. The film had a successful run, uh, actually many successful runs, as a midnight movie, particularly popular in L.A. at the New Art Theater, where he made that trailer for. And it definitely launched his career, and it was a very personal project. He shot it on the AFI uh, at the mansion, where they have the the classes and everything. They had some abandoned stable rooms and he actually built Henry's apartment there and filmed there and lived there himself for a while when he was going through a divorce. So this was a very seminal film for him. Racerhead tells the story of a man with a giant uh, head of hair 
you know, partly hence the name, although there's also a dream sequence where his head is literally made into erasers. And this man finds out that he has a baby. Well, uh, maybe it's a baby. According to one of the characters, they're not actually sure what it is yet. And David Lynch has never revealed how this baby was constructed. It's one of those trade secrets that he loves to keep. But it's a pretty amazing puppet slash special effect slash whatever it is. And it's always crying and disturbing. Henry can't get any sleep. His wife eventually leaves and never really comes back. There's one scene where she's in bed with him, but then she's gone again. And she's just kind of out of the picture. It's up to him to take care of this baby. He can't go anywhere. Uh, he sees a woman across the street that he wants to uh, get together with and tries to kind of hide the baby from her when she comes into his room, even though it's just mewling in the corner. It gets sick and he has to... Uh, take its temperature and then all these warts and disgusting growths kind of burst out on its face. It's just a really ghoulish scenario. It takes every parent's nightmare of having a baby take over their lives and just takes it to the hilt and turns it into a monster movie. And of course, this being a Lynch film, there's many different spaces that the characters can move between, although it's much more constricted than some of his later films. Most notably, there's a lady in the radiator. When Henry stares at the radiator against his wall, he sees a light go on behind it and the camera takes us inside and we see this happy, cheerful woman, um, mostly pretty except for giant growths on her cheeks, although I guess those are kind of uh, cute and lovable as well if, if you have a Lynchian sensibility. And she's dancing around and she starts crushing these weird mutant sperm-like things that are falling from the sky that we saw in the beginning of the film that actually the first one emerged from Henry's mouth. And we get the sense that this is kind of what the baby evolved from the aesthetic of the film in some ways, uh, well, fully Lynchian, of course, nonetheless, in some ways, the aesthetic is, and, and the themes as well, to a certain extent are closer to contemporaries like Ridley Scott and David Cronenberg than some of the stuff that Lynch would do later. All of his early works have a lot of body horror in them. Not that the later films don't necessarily at times as well. We saw plenty of that in The Return. Um, there's lots of oozing, real tactility to the image where you just have a very sharp sense of the physical texture of what you're seeing. And that carries on through Elephant Man, through Dune. Uh, you know, there's heavy use of makeup and and lots of physical concrete effects that you're seeing on the screen everything has a, a very jagged sharpness i would say the visual design of this film each element is particular and jumps out at you almost as an independent item you know if you think of it as a certain style of painting where there's uh, iconographic quality to it if that makes sense in this film henry's fighting for selfhood for imagination he keeps retreating into these fantasies which the baby often pulls him out of, not necessarily fantasies maybe, but glimpses of a larger, different reality. I don't think the lady in the radiator, it's quite proper to call her a fantasy, but she obviously represents some kind of uh, other world that he could live in and be happier. And it's interesting that Lynch came up with the idea of the lady in the radiator a ways into the production, and it was after he began practicing transcendental meditation. So without that, the film would lose any sense of optimism or possibility beyond Henry's claustrophobic world. Even though it's still very claustrophobic, you have to wonder what it would be like without any lady in the radiator at all. Singing, you know, in heaven, everything will be fine. And 
giving Henry this embrace at the end of the film in light where there's a sense of deliverance. However, you know, you think that came about. The interesting thing about Henry's struggle is the film may be about creativity in a sense, but it has no object. Henry's not really creating anything. He he may have this sense of self apart from the baby and apart from this clustered world that's represented by the lady in the radiator but within the film he's not sort of an artist or a creator and that's something that is distinct from inland empire where the creative process is a subject of the film as well it's not just an allegory for it it's not an abstraction of the artistic struggle it's an engagement with it directly and the baby seems to have some some sort of control over this you know it's it's interesting the first time he starts to hear the music from the radiator and see the stage uh, the baby is the one that seems to shut it off when it starts crying. Uh, but the baby is also equated with him repeatedly throughout the film. Uh, for example, one sequence, he's in the room with the lady in the radiator and he pushes himself behind this enclosed area and his head pops off and the baby's head emerges. And later when the the neighbor across the hall is going into her room with another guy, we see her staring at him and we cut to what seems to be her point of view and that's the baby's head atop Henry again. So... The baby really represents his own trapping himself. There's these larger forces that are around you and feel like they're trapping you, but there is a way out and you yourself have to find it. One last thing to note about Eraserhead, it's such an odd film. It seems like, how could this fit in anywhere? It doesn't fit in with the new Hollywood tropes of the time. It's certainly not a classic, uh, you know, prior to new Hollywood type of film either. Um, there's a cult aspect to it, but it's not like a genre film whatsoever. It's just this totally personal vision that seems to stand outside of history in a way. And yet there was a venue that emerged for it, which was the Midnight Movie. So there was a way people could frame this as we go see this weird thing at midnight. All of Lynch's films, for all of his incredibly unique qualities, they always seem to sort of find a context that they can exist with, whether it's TV soap operas or kind of a critically acclaimed art film, or a blockbuster. Um, you know, that one, the Dune failed, but it, that was still what it was going for. It existed within that context. And Eraserhead, surprisingly, being created without a context in mind, found one in the Midnight movie. And I think that's fairly true of all of his films up until Inland Empire. And that film, I don't know if it still even has found a proper context that people can kind of understand it within. From Hollywood, California, where stars make dreams, and dreams make stars. You have a new role to play, I hear. Up for a role? No, no. I definitely hear that you have it. Empire is unlike anything Lynch has created before and even since. It's about an actress who gets cast in a melodrama um, about a woman who has an affair with a wealthy man at the house that she's uh, working at. 
And uh, that makes it sound fairly conventional. The film is anything but. So there's rabbits who are in this room by themselves, speaking in these cryptic sentences. Um, when I say rabbits, I mean people in giant brown rabbit suits with bathrobes and suits over the over the rabbit skin. And they just stare into the distance and say things. And uh, off-screen audience cheers and laughs and applauds like it's some sort of alien sitcom. There's all these scenes set in Poland, uh, often at night in a snowy city where characters are conspiring against each other in vague ways. And there's murders and there's a hypnotist type figure called the Phantom who works with a circus and is terrorizing several of the characters. There's the character Sue within the film who has a life of her own that we see independent of what's being shot. Uh, she lives in a smaller, more modest home with an abusive husband and uh, is pregnant and probably with the man she's having an affair with. There's a woman who has a, a screwdriver stabbed into her uh, stomach. Uh, William H. Macy shows up to make a random... Um, <laughs> into a random intro for some gossip show um it's just a crazy film and i haven't even given a hint of the the craziness in this description this film uh is just a hell of a ride it's three hours long it was shot on early digital not hd pd 150 which was um you know a decent camera for the time but nothing even close to a professional standard now and it certainly wasn't something people are shooting we're shooting films with. Lynch was doing a lot of digital shorts in the early 21st century, um, just weird, cryptic little movies. And then, of course, the rabbits footage in this film, that's from a web series he made where it was just those episodes of the rabbits sitting and standing and talking and doing domestic chores, really haunting and disturbing, and at times almost a trance, like to put you into a trance. I think there was a actual scientific study done where somebody would uh, give people uh, psychotropic drugs and then have them watch rabbits and record their reactions. Like this was actually a psychology department somewhere was doing this, if I'm not mistaken. So that's the film we're dealing with. It, it seems like there's no real way to piece it together, but actually there's always this persistent sense, and this is true of all of Lynch's late films and even this one, where beneath the chaos you sense that there is some through line. You're always grasping for it because the characters are often grasping for it, and Lynch is giving you little teases and hooks. He'll fade one image into another to suggest there's some connection, and he'll he'll explain things a little bit, just enough to let you think, okay, there is an explanation, and then he'll kind of pull the rug out from under you again. So it's a frustrating, fascinating film like that, and it's really one of my favorite Lynch films at this point, and in some ways, um, the culmination of everything else he was doing. On this viewing, I felt like I was often able to grasp more of a certain logic in the narrative. More things were falling into place, or they seemed to be. Admittedly, while I was watching it, you know, these little epiphanies, when you come back to it, it's almost like uh, waking up from a dream and, wait, no, actually, that doesn't fit together as well as I thought, you know. This time, though, there were some things to hold on to. For one thing, I think I had a clearer idea of when the character Laura Dern was playing was Nikki, the actress, and when she was Sue, the character that kind of comes to independent life. And sometimes you can see one character slipping into the world of the other. So for example, when uh, Devin, the other actor, is in bed with Nikki, uh, he's speaking in a southern accent and he calls her Sue. And it's in the house, that uh, sort of um, suburban house that Sue lives in. So we can be fairly sure that that's kind of Sue's world, the character's world. 
um, in its in its own way. Even though it's Nikki who kind of bursts into that reality because she starts talking about when we were shooting this scene and this and that, and he doesn't even understand and he laughs at her. But that's Nikki kind of emerging to consciousness in the world of Sue. And then likewise in the following scene, Sue is getting groceries and she sees the axon end sign and she walks onto the set and she sees Nikki sitting there. It's the scene we saw earlier where they heard somebody in the background and they don't know who it was. And it's very interesting that this happens at the moment when Nikki is first uh, reading the script with Devin and the director and uh, starting to bring the character to life. The way Lynch shoots it, it's a little similar to Mulholland Drive where we're just seeing these characters in this casual environment but they start acting and it's really convincing and we're feeling an emotional truth to what they're, to their performance. And so at that moment, the character emerges on the set behind them, even though there's no way in, they invited the character now into this world through the act of creation. This is very much a film about creation. Um, Lynch loves to create worlds and disappear inside of them. He spoke about that with Eraserhead, where he was actually living on the set, for some of that time and how it was this world, this whole world that he wanted to live in as long as he could. And he said that with Twin Peaks, you know, the world is still there. The cameras aren't on it, but it still exists. And he said that for years before he came back with the return. And Inland Empire, in a way, is the realization of that idea. The fictional world has a life of its own. And what the actors and the creative team are doing is not so much creating something out of thin air as tapping into that world and bringing it out, bringing it forth. And I think that's what we see realized in this in this movie in a lot of ways. Is the affair that Nikki is possibly having with her co-star um, against her husband's virulent wishes, is that the trigger that starts her psychotic break? Or is she having a creative breakthrough, a heightened consciousness as she identifies with the character? Or is there an actual curse on this script? Uh, it's a remake of a film in which the lead actors were killed uh, the film was never completed, and that itself is based on an old Polish gypsy folk tale that's supposed to be cursed or haunted. There's this idea that it, it could be any any sort of one of these things happening, but really we get the sense it's all three bleeding together. And this is a way the film seems very shaped by making a firewalk with me, where there was this sense that Laura Palmer was a real character and she was emerging into the consciousness, especially of Cheryl Lee, the actress, and kind of taking over in a way that actually had crew members worried about her health. It, I see no way that Inland Empire, even at least subconsciously, isn't derived partly from that experience. And there's only so much we can figure out because there's only so much Lynch tells us. There's only so much he knows, possibly. What's the actual plot of On High and Blue Tomorrows, the film that they're shooting within the film? What's the actual story it's based on? What happened in the Polish story and, and, and impacted all of this? Who's the battered woman? Is she Sue or is she somebody else, a third person that Laura Dern is playing? I'm not totally clear on that. Sometimes she refers to things that happened to Sue, but I don't know if that's if she's maybe like... Uh, an original figure who uh, Sue is drawing from, the lost girl who uh, Laura Dern emerges into the room of at the end and who opens the film crying in front of the TV set and seeing the images from the film. It seems like she's really at the source of all this. At one point, those figures who sur often surround uh, Laura Dern's character are surrounding this girl in Poland, and she says the same line that Laura Dern said, which is, uh, tell me, I think it's, tell me if you've known me as someone else. And when Laura Dern asks it, they, they say, yes, I think I have, or something like that. When the lost girl says it, they shake their head and they point at her. And I think that's one way of Lynch cryptically telling us she is sort of the original. Um, you know, and these other 
forms of her are through the storytelling over time and things like that. Um, she's kind of the foundational phenomenon at the core of this narrative. I would love to hear, before I move on to the connection section, I'd love to hear from people what they see, uh, particularly about the, um, the story of Inland Empire, if there's certain things you think do kind of make sense and click together. Um, I don't think the film needs that kind of logic necessarily to, to work, but it is fun to see something take form within all of these clashing disparate elements in the film. So that's it for this particular episode, but we are going to resume right where we left off next week, next Wednesday, with 10 connections between Eraserhead and Inland Empire. I'm really looking forward to putting this one up. I always love drawing connections between different works, and there was a lot to dig into here. So see you there. (laughs) 